Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hello and welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with Mr. Tyler W. Swift. Tyler, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks, RJ. How are you? Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, taking the time to sit down with me. I know you're a busy man out in uh, Puerto Rico right now. Is that right? I am. I'm enjoying some time here in the beautiful old San Juan. So I appreciate cool. you having me on the show. Yeah, man. So we'll we'll jump in while you're while you're down in Puerto Rico and what you got going on in Latin America later in the episode. But I want to start off by you know kind of introducing yourself and telling everybody what it is you do in real estate investing. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So just to give everybody a little backstory, uh, I'm from a very small town in Southwest Missouri, about ten thousand people. Um, I grew up there, and it's it, it's a great place to be from. It's a great place to, to raise families, and that that's sort of what everybody does there. And um, I think back about it now, and it was sort of a life in contrast. On the one hand, I was living in a very small town uh, without a lot of exposure to, to culture or diversity. And then on the other hand, my parents actually loved to travel, so they started exposing me and my brothers and sisters at a young age to a lot more of those opportunities and diversities, and, and they loved to cook, and so just a lot of the spices of life they, they were bringing into my world. And so it was a little bit of a struggle. Um, I acted out a little bit, got in a little bit of trouble, and, and had a little bit of a challenge trying to deal with these two kind of opposing uh, potential life uh, lifestyles, right? So, right. Um. Uh, ultimately, what I what I figured out was uh, how to kind of bridge that gap. Was I in high school? We all had to kind of take uh, the the prerequisite Spanish classes, and um, I really I really got engaged into that process, into the language, and into the culture. So for me, it was a window into the other other world, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I ultimately began kind of plotting my escape. Right, I couldn't wait to get out of high school <laughs> and get out of get out of Neosho, Missouri, for a while. Right. Uh, so I did that. Uh, ultimately, I went to school at the University of Arizona, and my education, my studies ended up taking me uh, further into Latin America, which, like you said, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about. And, and the reason I like to tell this part of the story is to give it some context. Right. Um, and, you know, the University of Arizona, obviously, I had, had a great Spanish program. I ended up getting a degree in history, and most of my focus there was in Latin American history. Uh, I also got a degree in Spanish and Portuguese, so I really took the opportunity to go a little further, and uh, I st did a study abroad in Ecuador, in Cuenca. Um, that was a place that I'd never really heard of or thought of. It wasn't one of the big popular places to do a study abroad trip, and for me, it was um, it was the, the real uh, introduction to the Latin lifestyle. I lived with a family and was forced to learn Spanish and, and really engage in the culture, and, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, so I tried to repeat that, and I ended up also going into to Portuguese as well. I did a study abroad trip in Fortaleza, Brazil. I lived there for six months and made my effort to learn Portuguese a little tougher than Spanish for me still. But I, I do have a, a relative decent uh, background with that. Um, after I got done, it was kind of like, well, now what do you do? I've got a degree in history and Spanish. Right. So, yeah, I, I ultimately really enjoyed that part of the process, but it wasn't 
wasn't sure where I was going to go with it. And so I did have an opportunity after getting out, of, after graduating to pursue one of my other passions, which is aviation. And so I ended up uh, taking a job in based out of Guam, Guam, USA is uh, out in the Pacific. <clears throat> and I spent about six years as a helicopter mechanic and working around in the, in the South Pacific, Southeast Asia a little bit. And, and like I said, based out of Guam, um, about 2008, I'd come back to the United States. I was working on getting my rotorcraft rating so I could actually be a, a helicopter pilot and mechanic, uh, have my fixed wing rating. And that's when the whole economy started tanking. And I was working for a bigger corporation in the aviation industry back in the U.S. And it was a real corporate mentality. There was a lack of reverence for aviation, in my opinion, uh, through that structure. And I ultimately came across a, a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure you've heard that a few times yeah. on this uh, podcast. Yeah. And it just clicked, you know, it, it just made sense. I was ready to really start doing something for myself. Yeah. So that's what set me on my real estate investing career. Of course, it was 2008. So everybody else was running away from real estate. And uh, I can be a little bit of a contrarian, I suppose, sometimes. So I was ha happy to go where others weren't. <laughs> That's funny, man. Uh, uh, yesterday, I have a, I have my show on Propelio TV called Titanium Tuesdays. And uh, my guest uh, yesterday was talking about how Rich Dad, Poor Dad changed their lives. And uh, I told them, I said, look, man, I've interviewed people all across the country. And I think like 90% of my guests reference Rich Dad, Poor Dad at some point in time. Um, in, in their interview, kind of just talking about how they got to where they are today and, and that how much that book impacted them. And so, uh, yeah, you're, you're one of many that that book's impacted. And I also read it when I was very young. I was too young when I read it, though. I, I knew it, it made an impact on me, and I, I knew what I was reading was, you know, something that I should be paying attention to. But at the time, I was just uh, ignorant and too young and wasn't worried about any of that at the time. So, yeah, but it planted the seed, right? Absolutely. So, so it's, 2008, it's you know, you decide you're, you're a contrary and you decide you're going to jump into real estate, um, when everybody else is running. So how did that work out? And, and where were you started? Did you go back to Missouri when you got your start? I did. I, I came back. My, all my family's still in Southwest Missouri. Uh, so I came back there. I was doing a lot of field service. So I was traveling around, a lot, but based out of Southwest Missouri. So when I started my real estate business, everybody, of course, thought I was crazy. I ultimately quit my job and, and just jumped in, uh, kind of kiddingly, just jumped in face first. I really had no experience, no money, no network, no no real background in, in any of it. And uh, But it, it was something that I felt like if I could suffer through the couple of years, then I'd be ready to ride the wave up. And of course, as it turned out, it was more like about five years, I think, before the wave really started picking things up. Right. But, uh, I slogged it out and, and made it, so uh, no regrets. <laughs> for so sure. What did you? What strategy did you start with? Was it flipping, wholesaling? What did you start with? Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked. That's um, old. You know, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's impressive the uh, the impact that he's had, and that was really his goal, right? Was to 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 set people financially free. And so for me, it was all about cash flow. It was all about uh, building that passive income. And funny enough, it was really, uh, I wanted to build that at home and, and get that established so that I could set myself free and start spending more time getting back to my roots, getting back to some travel in Latin America and, and, and doing those things that, that now, fortunately, I'm able to do. So, so you uh, it was all into creating passive income. So I'm assuming that's like single family rentals. Yes, sir. And I I did go ahead and I bought a Homevestors franchisee. Or, sorry, I'm still a franchisee, so I bought a Homevestors franchise in uh, 2008. 
think I was like one of two people that maybe bought a franchise that year. Uh, they're probably <laughs> selling like one a day at this point, but, um, but yeah, back then it was about single family houses. Uh, you know, Southwest Missouri is, uh, not a big appreciation, not a lot of big price swings. There's not, you don't get the big home runs quite as often around there. So, but it's a very stable market and it's a great cash flow market. Uh, the rentals do very well there. So, all right. So I'm sure if everybody that's listening right now, they're going, okay, you, you read this book, you decide you jump in, you're jumping in at the worst time that you could possibly jump into real estate. And well, to, to most people, most investors look back and they think that was a great time to get started. Right, um, right. Uh, but that being said, you didn't have any money, so how are you buying rental properties? Uh, I actually bought my franchise with a credit card. <laughs> wow, I did have good. Nice. I did have good credit. I had no cash, uh, but I did have good credit, and so I really tried to leverage that. I bought the franchise with a credit card. Uh, it was a great thing for me at the time, but like I said, with no experience or network, they really helped uh, give me some of that impetus to start gaining traction. Um, and it was tough. I, I, I had to raise private money and, and, you know, with no credibility at that time and in a small place, that wasn't easy. But uh, luckily, friends and family were, were a good support network for me then and uh, gave me enough to get going. The real strategy, uh, I'm certain that, you know, a lot of people have done it is it, it, you buy the house <clears throat> and if you fix it up and sell it, at the end of the day, you end up netting about 85 percent. Uh, but I could go and refinance it with a bank and get 80 percent. Then, of right. course, if you sell it, you pay the taxes, and then you don't have anything left. It's just kind of a job at that point. Um, but to keep it, you don't pay the taxes. Uh, put them all on 15-year amortizations, pretty focused on trying to get those paid down pretty quick, and they still cash flow well enough. Um, and the the home investor's model, uh, you know, m most investors' model is to try to buy the properties at around 65 to 70%. So ultimately, I was able to start generating some cash flow even just out of the front end of the business through that acquisition model. And it was just a rinse and repeat. Gotcha. So when you first got started and, you know, you're struggling, you had to raise that private capital. And like you said, you, you didn't really have a track record to go back on, you know, kind of give an idea of, you know, how many deals were you actually like? What was your volume level those first couple of years? Oh, not good. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, uh, Missouri's a low cost of living. So I didn't have a tremendous amount of living expenses and, and was able to kind of live on the cheap. Uh I'd have to look back. I'd say that first year I maybe did eight to 10 deals. Um, see, but you, you think about that. I mean, that is a lot. I mean, you're, you're going from like not knowing anything at all and you have no, you have no guidance. You had no network. You had no capital. You're using a credit card. I mean, to be able to do that <laughs> and, and most people, you know, they get started with like wholesaling, you know, if you were wholesaling, that would be one thing, but you were actually taking these down or are these still properties that you own today? Um, yes and no. Uh, so I, I ultimately started my business in Joplin, Missouri. Uh, it's okay. a town of about 50,000 people in the southwest corner my, the, uh, in about 20 minutes from my hometown. Um, we did wholesale some, but the problem was in 2008 in a, in a town of 50,000 people, there wasn't very many people to wholesale anything to either. Right. Uh, and then, of course, the rehab side of things, it becomes very capital intensive. It has a long, uh, you know, turns turnaround cycle. So, um, we just, it, it was dictated by the deal and it was really just, a, it was a fight, uh, whatever I needed to do with any particular deals, what I had to kind of make happen. Right. But yeah, I was able, was able to, to start keeping some of those. 
Um, my business now is based primarily in Springfield, Missouri. It's about 60 miles up the highway, so still pretty close. Uh, Joplin, Missouri was hit with a EF5 tornado back in 2011. It was a major disruption in my business and just also my personal life. It was, it was a horrific tragedy. So I'd already been operating in Springfield and Joplin both. And at that point, I sort of shifted my focus. There was clearly more opportunity in Springfield. And I didn't really like the – it was a little bit too emotional for me to get involved in – in buying a lot of these storm damaged houses, there was a lot of people from out of the area came in and, and somewhat predatory. So I really tried to distance myself from that at the time. Having said that, I did keep my Joplin uh, portfolio and we still do buy houses in Joplin. And I still do have some rentals down there, but I've tried to sell off most of those over the last two or three years uh, to just really rein in our, our management system. We, we do self-manage all of our properties as well. And you know, when it's 60 miles down the road and you have a tenant that, or a prospect that wants to look at a house, they don't want to wait till next Wednesday when we're in town. So Right. And I know what happened in Joplin, like you said, was very emotional for you and, and kind of touched you. And and you have now since uh, started a nonprofit to kind of help out the the rebuilding of Joplin. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I hadn't thought about uh, giving a plug for that, but it, and, and it wasn't—I wasn't the big driving force behind it. But uh, there was a nonprofit that came out of that. I'm on the board of that group. It's called Jomo Adventures. We still do uh, continued efforts to raise money for other things now, uh, but it was a big deal. We we actually started up with a, this idea that we would ride our bicycles from. Joplin, Missouri, all the way down to New Orleans, which was still recovering from Hurricane Katrina. And mm -hmm. the uh, concept was that community is not defined by proximity. So we actually ended up raising, I think, $150,000 on top of all of our expenses. Uh, wow. It's a pure nonprofit. Like, we don't pay anybody. Everybody's all volunteer. Um, so we were able to build a house in Joplin. We built a house in New Orleans. And then while we were on the ride, uh, the hurricane, I don't remember the name, maybe Michael or something, hit New York and the East Coast. And so we sent $50,000 up there to help build a house as well. So wow. it had a fantastic turnout. And like I said, it, it gained some momentum. We had a great trip. Uh, nobody in the group was really – well. maybe there's a couple guys that were kind of pro, semi-pro riders. But most of us were just like get on a bicycle and try to figure this out. And um, the, the, the support of the entire group really propelled us all to, to get there. And we all did. We all finished. That's amazing, man. And, you know, I, I I couldn't even told you the town Joplin, Missouri, you know, existed before that storm hit. And uh, I'm, I'm a NASCAR fan. And so when it did hit, you know, uh, Jamie McMurray, who's a NASCAR driver, is from yep. Joplin, Missouri. And uh, it, got, it got a lot of publicity in the NASCAR world. And, and it, it, it was a, 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 a tragedy. I mean, uh, the devastation that hit there was was very intense. So. Um, kudos to you for, for being a part of that nonprofit and what you guys did. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's good. It's great to give back. It yeah. feels good. It, it sure <laughs> there's, does. A, there's a self, there's a selfish reason to it too, right? Because it does make you feel good. Well, yeah, it, it does. And, and you know, the flip side of that is, is you hope at, at some point in time, if something like that were to ever happen, you know, and, and impact you personally in your life or, you know, there would be other people that would step up. And so. Um, that's a that's an amazing cause, and uh, I'm assuming now Joplin is is back fully functional and, and kind of rebuilt at this point. Um, yes and no. I mean, there, there certainly was a ton of money pumped in from outside investment, insurance money. I think they have the the probably the most state of the art high school in the country now. Um, 
and most of the recovery efforts done. However, you, you drive through town and the, and the face of it has changed, you know, it right. cut a huge path right through the middle of town. And it, like I said, it's 50,000 people destroyed 7,000 homes. So it's pretty significant. Um, and it, it doesn't look quite the same. All the trees are kind of gone or small or whatever, but, but they've, they've done a good job, uh, getting their feet on the ground. And unfortunately, you know, these, these disasters continue to happen. I'm here in Puerto Rico right now, and we're, we're talking about the recovery efforts here. So, um, having experience with that. And then even in Guam, I went through some typhoons out there. So, uh, you know, unfortunately natural disasters are part of our life and, uh, how to recover is becoming a better process and system as, as different organizations figure out how to manage that and leverage it into other areas. Right. So I know, so you, you, you kind of transition your business to Springfield and you, you began buying rental properties there. I know another part of your business is Airbnbs and, and it kind of feeds into your adventure lifestyle that you have, right? Yes, for sure. Uh, my first experience with that was in Colorado. My brother and I, in 2015, my brother's a, a little bit of a wild hair, and he he said, "Hey, let's uh, let's buy a place out in Colorado." And so he's got always got these great ideas, and we thought, "Okay, okay, sure." So we sent our financials out to the local bank, and kind of thought they might just come back and say, okay, boys, you stick around for a while, call us in a year or two, but they approved us. And so we pulled the trigger and bought a place in Colorado and Steamboat Springs. And it, it's a big part of our lifestyle. We go out and use it a lot. It wasn't uh, strictly an investment, but certainly uh, we've, we've done well with that as, as well. And uh, I do love the Airbnb model and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here coming up. But yeah. uh, there, there's a lot of that going on in Branson right now. We have a small resort there that we're developing and, and intending to do nightly rentals. Um, I think it's got a lot of power. So yeah, you know, you you went out and you kind of bought this one out in Colorado as a kind of semi investment, but also something that you personally wanted in your life. Uh, but since I've known you, um, for for those of you that don't know, Tyler's a, a member of Investor Fuel, which I've referenced uh, here several times. Um, on the podcast, a great mastermind run by Mike Hambright and Stinson and Hannah. And, um, you know, we're, we're kind of a family. And so I've kind of watched Tyler over the past year. You know, I know that when we first met, you had that one Airbnb and now it looks like you're developing a resort in, in Branson. Uh, but you've got some, a really cool project that you're going to be a part of, or I, I don't even know if that's the right term, but, uh, an opportunity coming up in Latin America. So I'll open up the floor to you to kind of explain what's going to be happening here. Yeah. So yeah, let's bring it back around to that. Um, so yeah, as, as business got better in, in Missouri and as I began to have enough rentals to start to kind of cover, you know, living expenses and keep the lights on, so to speak, I was able to, to really get back to why I started all that and, and do a lot more travel in, in Central and South America. And I was really, my brother and I both have been probably over the last five years, it was like, okay, we got the place in the mountain. We've got some stuff at the lake in Missouri. Uh, we need a place at the beach. And we wanted an international destination. Uh, my brother also, he did the he did the whole gringo trail from like Costa Rica, made it all the way down to Argentina, spent a year plus on that. And so he loves Latin America as well. And, and we've been looking. And so we've been traveling around to these places. It's a little different style of travel that we do. Uh, we do a lot of research before we go. And as opposed to just like hopping off the cruise ship with the uh, umbrella drink and a camera around our neck, we're, we're, we're showing up for a little bit of business and we're reaching out and finding in these areas who's doing developments, who's uh, doing investment, who's catering to the Americans as far as an agent or tour groups, you know, who the real operators are. 
and connecting with them. And so when we got there, you know, agents are usually pretty connected people. And a lot of these areas are, are smaller areas. And so it's just been fantastic. It really had a lot of unintended consequences in the sense that we would show up to these places and, and all of a sudden be introduced to a lot of the real movers and shakers in the areas and, and getting kind of a, 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 I guess, like an inside track on, on the on the spot, right? Right. So... I don't know. Uh, we, we, we've been, I guess in a sense, it's like I've been looking for what I finally found. And last year I went to, uh, Columbia came on the map for me and, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about Columbia. And I, I feel like where perception and reality diverge the most is where there's the most opportunity. Uh, kind of back to the 2008 thing, right? Everybody's right. running away, but that's where, that's where I run to. So, uh, as Columbia has stabilized itself, um, it became a, a top destination choice for me. Uh, Cartagena is the city I went to last summer. It's a nice big city on the coast. It's got the beaches. They've got mountains very close as well. Uh, the diversity there is amazing. And I had a great time there. The The, the walled city is a, a UNESCO heritage site. They've done a fantastic job preserving and, and continuing to renovate and restore that without losing its original charm and character. Um, and so that's where I found, a, got a little bit of an intro into a company that now I'm, I'm involved with called LifeFR. And the only thing I didn't like about Cartagena, well, I guess two things, was first of all, I was kind of blown away by the prices. Uh, for a three-bedroom, two-bath colonial house in the walled city, you're looking at about a million bucks. Wow. So that wasn't quite what I was ready to do yet. <laughs> right. And the other thing is, it's insanely hot. Um, it, it's just, it's hot and it's humid. And I'm kind of more of a mountain person, right? I'm from the Ozark Mountains. I love the I love the Rocky Mountains out in Colorado. So uh, the next choice for me was to go to Medellin, and that's where I've been this summer a, a number of times now. And that's where I really started to meet some of the ownership and the executive team of Life Afar, and got got my head much more around the concept of what they're doing and and. First, it was just like, oh, I'll go down there and maybe buy an apartment and they can manage it for you. They offer that. It's called a TIP, a turnkey real estate project, you know, common stuff around the U.S. as well, but not so common in Latin America. Right. And they are they are running that on the Airbnb sort of platform. Um, but then as I got down there, uh, and, and just to, to give some uh, some comparison, so uh, for a, a nice condo in Medellin in a great neighborhood like Poblado, you're looking at about maybe a quarter million. So, you know, quite a bit less. And, right. and if you compare that city to any other cosmopolitan city around the world, the prices really are, are still quite low. Um, but as I started looking into the company and seeing what was going on, I, I discovered they had another product, which they call Preps. Um, and that's a packaged real estate investment. As their business started growing, they've been doing this for about 10 years. So they actually started doing this in Medellin about the same time I was getting started in Missouri I mean, back in 2005, 6, 7, 8. Um, they, they realized that it was kind of tough to scale some of these single apartments. And so they started buying bigger buildings and converting all the proper, all the units in the building into the Airbnb apartments. And then they crowdfund those projects. So one of the interesting things about Columbia is they don't have a mortgage market. Everything there is cash. I think mortgage penetration is like 3%, which is just really hard to get your head around how that could be possible. But right. They're obviously a, a very wealthy country in a lot of ways. There's certainly a lot of poverty there, and they still have some issues, but um, they've really cleaned up their act. And, and ultimately, Medellin's experienced a lot of growth in prices and appreciation over the last few years. So then I thought, oh, and the cool thing about the prep is you can get in on that for like 25 grand. 
So, you know, 10% of what you're looking at spending to, to buy a place. So what does um, that look like? Like on the preps, you know, is that like you're buying a, a one unit that's going to be rented out as an Airbnb and you're just making an investment of 25000 and and getting a return back on that? Yeah, so um, not exactly. So ultimately, it's a crowdfunded project, and you would own shares in the entire project. Each project okay. has its own uh, private placement memorandum. It's all run through uh, uh, through a Panamanian corporation. So it's all done to the SEC regs and U.S. standards. It's all real familiar. If you've if you've looked at those types of documents before, it's going to be, uh, you know, they're they're appealing to the U.S. market, and most of the guys on the executive team are from the U.S. There's some Australians and Europeans as well. Um, and some Colombians, of course, and other Latin Americans. But the, the U.S. market is their biggest customer for, for both as guests and also as investors. Um, so because they can't get leverage, they have to raise all the cash for these projects. And so you would just own shares in that project. And they project a certain amount of returns. Certainly they have a lot of pro formas. Their marketing decks are fantastically done. Um, the, the level of sophistication that this company has is, is just it really blew me away that they've attracted a lot of guys and it's really cool because most of these people are kind of like me. They have this, they have this passion for real estate. They're, they're leaving fortune 500 companies in the U S and leaving six and maybe even seven figure salaries and going down there and making a few pesos because they believe in this long-term vision and, and the long-term play of what they're, what they're doing. Um, and so that ultimately most of the projects, they project returns around 9%. Um, the actuality is that most investors are getting more of that and they get it on a quarterly basis. Okay. And it, it, what is your involvement with Life of Far going to be at this point? Are you just going to be an investor or are you going to take a bigger role in that? <laughs> right. So, yeah, I was like, okay, I'll do a turnkey thing. I was like, oh, no, maybe I should do a prep. Um, we might have more people walking in. I hope it doesn't get too loud. Um, but then it was as I, as I learned more about it and started meeting the ownership and the executives, it was like, okay, I want in. How do I get more actively involved? So right. ultimately that hasn't been 100% solidified yet as far as inking the deal, but we've got a role set. Um, I'm going to be helping with some, some of their expansion efforts as they grow and, and find new markets to tap into. Um, they've got some great projects online right now, Puerto Rico being one of them. I suspect I'll be back here a few more times in the, in the near future. Uh, also in Cartagena, they have a great project going right now. I'll be down there in January. Um, and Panama and Peru are also uh, – they're, they're working with a company there and, and going to be having some projects going on there. So I, I have Thank an you. idea that I'll be bouncing around a little bit. Um, and ultimately, uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be able to put some of my money into the company itself. Do you think – is Puerto Rico one of the, the – potential destinations because of the opportunity zones that you spoke about at investor fuel uh for sure so actually yeah. they had they had um they had already gotten this project uh, acquired they were already looking at puerto rico before this opportunity zone thing even came out um it's a really new deal and so that's just a big bonus right they were already planning on doing something here there's a tremendous amount of opportunity Puerto Rico already has a lot of different tax incentives. Uh, they've been catering to the crypto community a little bit, which is quite interesting because there's a lot of those people that are moving down here. Um, there's a number of different acts, acts 20, 22. Uh, there's like a, there's like 10 of them. And they all cater to different people, different industries a little bit, but ultimately it's a great way. If you, you do have to spend a number, a, a certain amount of time here, there's some other tests you have to pass. It can't be just a, a, a kind of a, 
you got to do it legitimately, right? But right. Um, but yeah, to start to to reduce your federal tax rates, there's there's amazing opportunities here for that. So and if, you, you, could, and if you don't know what we're talking about with the opportunity zones, uh, it's worth your time to Google that and kind of do your own research. Um, opportunity zones are all across the United States, um, very heavily um, in Puerto Rico, like Tyler's talking about, but they are across the United States and um, it offers uh, huge tax benefits. Um, so check that out because, uh, you know, if you're investing and, and looking into development, there's opportunity. Well, of course, that's why they call it that. There's opportunities in the opportunity zones. So it's definitely something everybody should check out. Um, as far as that goes, Tyler, I, I mean, you know, you, you've got your portfolio going on in Missouri. You've got some Airbnbs development going on in Missouri. It looks like you're going to be a significant part of life afar. You know, kind of moving forward, you know, where do you see kind of yourself going in the next couple of years, maybe even four or five years down the road? Yeah, so I think uh, the life of our opportunity is going to continue to be an ongoing thing. Uh, my business in Missouri is still a big part of my existence as well. I've got a couple great guys on my team there, so we're still we're still buying houses and putting them in rental portfolios there as well. Um, that'll continue to happen. We do still work with private investors in that market. Uh, the life of our thing is going to give me diversity. I don't get too bored sitting around. Um, those are really going to be my two primary focuses probably over the next three to five years. Gotcha. Looks like we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. It's breaking up a little bit. So uh, probably going to cut the interview a little bit short before we lose you all together. Uh, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time, Tyler. And, and uh, this is a lot of very informative stuff about the, the Latin America market. Um, it, it's crazy. I, I feel like every time I have guests on, hey, it's like y'all come in waves. Uh, just recently, I had Elizabeth Navarrete, and, and she invests in Ecuador. And uh, it, it, that's literally like nothing I, I would have ever considered. Uh, you're looking at Colombia and Puerto Rico and all these other uh, Latin American markets. So it's it's very intriguing to me, and uh, I just appreciate yeah. taking the time, man, to kind of share that, that knowledge with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to connect with her. Uh, that would be that'd really be taking it all back home. Ecuador is not a place that Life of Fire currently is, but it's high on my radar because of my connection there. Uh, back to the opportunity zone. Just you know, for all your listeners, uh, it really is something that's cool. They they've designated this all over the U.S. and, and a lot of different cities and neighborhoods. Um, the Puerto Rico that is pretty impressive that they've designated pretty much the whole island to encourage investment. So I think that's something that hopefully you know, anybody that's investing in in any market can maybe take advantage of. It's a new thing, and, and there's a lot of power there to, to start to defer some taxes and really bump up your returns, move the needle. Absolutely, buddy. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us, buddy. Hey, I appreciate it, RJ. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you in February. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault. Titanium Vault.